After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Evergreen performer and comedian Richard Digence broke into the folk music scene of the 1970s, touring the US where he found himself as a support act for the great Steve Martin. Before long, he introduced comedy sections into his act and never looked back. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Richard became a regular contributor to light entertainment shows of the day, from Surprise Surprise to Des O'Connor Tonight. I caught up with the veteran entertainer to talk music, comedy, and reflections on a glittering career. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Richard Digents. Okay, so the first question that Josh has is, like so many of our best-loved comedians during this time, your comedy arose from the folk scene of the time. Is there a correlation between folk music and comedy? There certainly used to be. Um, on the uh, college circuit, especially where I started, uh, we were called uh, the folk entertainers. Uh, obviously, Billy Connolly was the pioneer. Um, and then there was uh, Max Boyce in Wales. There was uh, Mike Harding in the Midlands. And then there was Carrot, who we never took seriously because he didn't play the guitar. He used it as a prop. But don't, oh yes, yeah, say it, I don't care. <laughs> and um, and I sort of jumped on their bandwagon, sort of maybe four or five years after they came up, you know. And uh, and it was ready, we're, we're talking late 60s, early 70s, and and comedy was ready for a change, you know, from me sitting at home with my mum and dad watching blokes in velvet jackets and bow ties doing mother-in-law jokes, you know. But there was a university circuit that was more thinking. Um, and even today, it's where so many people, <clears throat> before they get to the Edinburgh Fringe, you know, they do the college circuits. Because there is an audience out there that wants to hear more than mother-in-law jokes and Irish jokes, you know, and stuff like that, which is so dinosaur. Even in 1970, 71, someone like me who was at college anyway, I just thought, it don't make me laugh. Uh, I'm, I'm a storyteller, really. Uh, and that was, I think, what Connolly pioneered. Uh, and it hadn't really been seen much in this country. A lot of Americans did it, but over here it was quite a new thing. And we all cashed in, which was great. Sounds good. Mm. Okay. So, uh, next one. You appeared on ITV's variety series, The Comedians. Today, the likes of Stan Boardman and Bernard Manning's material is frowned upon for obvious reasons. But beyond the xenophobia, in what <laughs> ways did this show pave the way for stand-up comedy on TV? I never appeared on The Comedians. Uh, it's, a it's a question that lots and lots of people believe I did. Um, but I never actually did. I, I never actually um, got on telly till early, sort of early 80s, really. So I was trudging around as a support act 
um, before my telly days. I was on radio. I had my own show on Radio 2, um, which was good also for comedy. And other stuff, you know, like when my radio show was going, going out, there was also like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There was really good programming, you know, um, which was to a degree ignored by telly for about five, six, seven years, you know. Um, but the 70s for me were essentially being a musician, telling funny stories. That that was what I set out to do. And through the 70s, I just supported so many people. Not because I was good, but I was easy. I was one bloke with a guitar. Yeah. Promoters loved that. There was no drum kit they had to move before the top of the bill came on, you know. You just walked in, guitar in hand. I did. Yeah. And it was a cuckoo. Existence, because the audience didn't know me. Uh, I was a nothing. And so I had nothing to lose. And I thought, I'll give it my best shot. Uh, and so I was playing to big, big arenas, you know, thousands and thousands of people who didn't particularly want to see me. And my mission was to impress them, get them singing, have a sing song, and get them laughing. If I did that every night, I used to feel I'd really achieve something. Because when you're supporting like Super Tramp and Jethro Tull and um, Elkie Brooks, Joan Armour Trading and all these big, big names, then certainly weren't there to see me. Uh, and so I just thought, well, nothing to lose. But it was the start of me creating a sort of a small following of my own, really. Um, and I went along with that. That was fine. You know, I, as I always say, I only went into comedy and music to chat girls up anyway, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, like many people, I'm quite an introverted person off stage, you know, so it was a nice expression, if you like. Uh, and then telly, it was all totally different. I mean, 1983, I went on television, um, stayed there till, right, um, about 1995, 96, and I got fed up with it. It was as simple as that. And um, and what happened, and I remember what happened, uh, I was in Clacton in Essex, just done a show, and a woman came up at the end of the show for, you know, signature and all that. And I said, did you enjoy the show? And she said, yeah. She said, I didn't know you played the guitar. And... I suddenly realised I've been doing so many things like Countdown, you know, poems, where I wasn't playing. But there were, genuinely, some people didn't even know I had put so many years, you know, into being a guitarist. And I thought, no, 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 I'm, I'm doing this wrong, you know. I want to be, if you like, I suppose the best way to describe it is a modern-day troubadour. That's what I always wanted to be. I didn't want to be just a stand-up and... And it's proved its point because most of the people, uh, I'm not an authority on this, but I think most of the people who were stand-ups when I was on telly, they're not really around anymore, you know. They, things change. The younger ones come through and they're good, you know, they are bloody good. And um, I never wanted to be a cobweb performer. It was never, ever in my remit really to do that. So I chucked telly in, started doing soundtracks for uh, programming, you know, the guitar you hear in the background on Country File or whatever. And, um, and then I started working with Bill Bryson, which was 
great. He's the world's biggest travel writer, and I was doing his audio books for him and writing his funny songs for him. So I took a different tack, if you like. Um, yeah, you lose your audience along the way. My theory was I was going to lose my audience anyway because nothing is forever in this game, I can assure you. A bit like a footballer, you know, you'd be a brilliant footballer, but you're no good at 33. <laughs> and I realised that, and I, I didn't want to be on a cooking programme, you know, and all that old bollocks. I just didn't, I didn't want to do it. I, I wanted to do what I do when I was a student, yeah. basically. And um, luckily I had a good CV with the BAFTA and all that stuff, so I was able to really pump myself really hard to go into a different channel, if you like. It makes me more content. I don't care how many people come to see me. That's never been my issue. I don't build theatres. I play in them. And if they put too many seats in when I'm on, that's not my fault. <laughs> and so I just basically had a great time on television and moved on. I changed my job, like we all do. We all change jobs, you know. And I decided to change mine. I was getting bored, to be honest, being on telly and two daughters. I And a um, single parent with two daughters. I, I didn't like doing the school runs and getting prodded. Saw you last night, you know, and all that stuff. And it used to... It didn't bother me, but I didn't want my daughters to actually see me as a strange, odd person who people wanted to come up and be stupid to. You know, and that's why I, by and, uh, yeah. I didn't enjoy it, funnily enough. And yet, it's stupid, isn't it? Because that's what you work for. You work for the recognition. When you get it, it gets on your bloody nerves. You know. When you and you, you don't want to end up eating kangaroo anus. <laughs> like when I was Def lady. Definitely not on television. Or maybe not in my private life either. I know I know exactly what you mean, Josh. You know, the the thing is there are people who will just do anything to go on television. Um especially these days, because there's so many different sort of programming you can do. I don't want to go in a kitchen. You're quite right. I don't want to go in the jungle and eat animals. You know, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, but when I came out of telly, I was just starting to... I was lucky because I had my own show on Saturday night, so I was very proud of that, you know, and I wanted to do guitar duets with Brian May and stuff that is still on my website as a bit of an achievement. I didn't really want to do celebrity squares and, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. Um, and, of course, I didn't have my guitar with me. I felt a bit odd. So I wasn't ever your bog-standard stand-up. Never wanted to be. Comedy, yeah, storyteller, yeah. But I didn't want to go, <laughs> testing, testing. My wife is so fat. You know, I never wanted to do that. So I never did. Mm. Uh, the 1970s was a very political, turbulent decade, but mm -hmm. for entertainment it was extremely rich. In comedy terms, finding yourself alongside people like Victoria Wood, Lenny Henry and Billy Conley. Researching this period, I find it very interesting. How do you think your generation bridged the gap between mainstream variety and alternative comedy? Well, at that time, theatres were married to television. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was a little boy probably before you two were born, 
and there was like, let's say Malcolm and Wise, let's just say, they would be on telly a lot, but they'd also do theatre tours a lot as well. You know, they were married together. And um, nowadays it isn't like that. You know, you get the Macintyres of the world, they will do the O2 in London, which I'm so anti because comedy is not for stadiums. It's for this here tonight. You know, it's intimacy. And it's watching people's faces and letting them enjoy what you're doing and saying. You know, and I always think it's a bit of a bank raid if you're going to go and do... And boast as well that I made 40 million quid on 40 shows or whatever. Big deal. You know, that don't impress me much. There's a song. Um, and... The, the marriage in the 70s that Josh is asking wasn't actually that difficult because there were talent shows because Victoria Wood came through on a talent show. Either New Faces or Opportunity Knocks, I can't remember which, but she came through on a talent show. Mm-hmm. And, and she was a folky. Yeah, you know, she, yeah. she was a folky. Mm. In later years, Pam Ayers, the, the poet, came through the folk scene, um, did the talent show, came through. It wasn't as vicious as it is now with um, the panel of a talent show like Cow, Simon Cow or whatever, who wants to be more important than the artist, which I'm also against, you know, because if someone gets up and he mocks them, which he does quite frequently, it shatters their confidence and he ruins their, their future, their careers, their dreams, all because he gets a cheap laugh. Talent shows back then that Josh is asking wasn't actually like that. It was an opportunity for talent to actually come through. You know, that was massively, massively different. With Billy Connolly, I've, I think I've already explained that he wasn't really a typical stand-up comic. He would do stories about the crucifixion or he'd do stories you know, about working in the shipyards in Glasgow or whatever, which was quite interesting but very, very, very funny. The funniest line I've ever heard, I attribute to Billy Connolly, uh, and I still remember it. He was talking about Bonnie Prince Charlie, and, and he said, it's really hard to take someone seriously when they're named after three sheepdogs. <laughs> and, and I just thought, you're clever. You know, you're not just a comic, you're actually clever. And I was very grateful that he began our route, if you like. And the transition wasn't as difficult as what people believe because you're quite right. The whole political world was changing and comedy was changing. It's changing today. You know, it's always changing. You know, language is changing. Uh, When I first went on telly in 1983, I was told that I could not mention wigs or false teeth. That was 1983, you know, and now you see what people, how they endorse comedy now, and you just think, really? It was true. It was true. And now, of course, you know, there are a lot of female comedians around, which there weren't. That's why Victoria Ward was so unique. You know, there weren't that many women around doing comedy then. And... Nowadays, of course, they can do, you know, private part jokes and all that stuff. Men can't do it to women. But women can certainly do the 
you know, the knob jokes and all that stuff. Um, never, in, through that transition of the 70s, that would never, ever have happened. But it was changing all the way along. There was a revolution, I suppose, you know, going on at that mm. time. I think if we, this is quite a boast and a bit arrogant, but if we hadn't pioneered that college humour, um, you may not have seen these people going through the fringe at Edinburgh and so on, you know. Um, we had nothing like that. It, it didn't exist. Um, but now, you know, people can do what they want, say what they want, and it isn't hinged on standing on telly with a waistcoat on doing stupid jokes, and I'm really proud of that. Okay, so, uh, touring the USA, you found yourself as a supporting act for Steve Martin. I did. How did this come about? Well, I was on the same record label. Uh, we both um, on a little label called Flying Fish, which was um, Mercury Records. Steve Martin taught me more than anybody else I've ever worked with. For a start off, everyone knows Steve Martin. He's a movie star and he's grey-haired lunatic. I can assure you in private life, he's the shyest, most well-mannered person you, you could ever wish to meet. And I was warned about him because um, they told me, watch his encore. And, and what he used to do for an encore, he used to take the audience out into the street and show them how to steal a car. And you think, what? <laughs> How'd you do it? And he did it, and I was with him. I mean, he did it every night, genuinely. Uh, I think he got done for it in the end, I don't know, but that's how we used to finish a show. Mm -hmm. And his bravery with an audience, and that's what this is, this is all about being brave, you know, taught me so, so much. He's also a fantastic musician. He's the best banjo player probably in the world. You know, he's, he's an enormously talented bloke. And um, and we used to finish, you know, with dueling banjos, guitar, but banjo. It was great working with him, you know. And um, what he taught me was, go as far as you dare. Don't be that bloke with a microphone who just heard a joke from his mates in the pub the night before and then just go and play it to 100 people. Go off the wall, you know. Don't tick that box. Go and get another box to tick, you know, and... Uh, and when I came home, I realised I'd learnt so much um, about how dangerous you can be on stage. And, that, and, and mixing it with music as well, don't forget, which was very much me. It was a very important time. Great to work with, really nice bloke. And God knows I've worked with some tossers in my time. And, <laughs> and, and you just think, look, is Steve Martin a huge legend, can be a polite man, Nice guy, you know, good laugh, bottle of Jack Daniels every night after a show, you know, then why can't everybody else? And in this world of entertainment, which is very shallow, I have to say, there are little gems within, little jewels. Steve Martin was one of them. Okay. You even appeared on the BBC's seminal The Old Grey Whistle Test. Notorious mm -hmm. for being raw and rustic, what are your memories of such an iconic show? <laughs> it was iconic, Josh, I can tell you. It was... To have someone being funny on the old grey whistle test was absolutely unheard of. Totally unheard of. And Bob Harris came to see me in Oxford 
And he laughed and he and he said, do you fancy doing the whistle test? And I said, only if I get a badge. Because everybody wanted to wear a gold grey whistle test badge. And they were gold dust. It was like a blue Peter badge for people on drugs. And, uh, and, it, and it was like, yeah, give me a badge. I'll come and do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I remember was the fear. Because when you walk into an old grey whistle test studio, it's not the same as a TV studio. There's amps, there's drum kits, there's guitars, long-haired blokes, roadies, you know, rockers, studs, bikers. And I'm going on, hopefully, to be a bit funny. And I remember Bob Harris, uh, introduced, because I did it twice, actually, once with Annie Nightingale as well. And uh, um, I remember Bob Harris called me... um, uh, a British heritage, that's what he called me. Uh, no, a national treasure, sorry. He called me a national treasure. And I felt so big and I felt so special. Um, and I never thought I would get away with it. Or do. That was quite early in my career. The next day, I lived in Essex, and the next day I walked into Romford around the market because I'd been on telly the night before. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get recognised. So I put my leather coat on and I was walking around. I'd, I had a lot of hair then, bushy hair. And I'm walking around Romford Market, going, someone's going to recognise me in a minute. I was on the telly last night. And this bloke came up to me. And he, and this is absolutely true, honestly. He said, can I have your autograph? And I went, yeah, of course. You know, I signed it. And he looked at it. And he looked at me. And I said, what's up? He said, I thought you were Leo Sayer. <laughs> That's the only recognition I got on my first TV show. was people thinking I was someone else. Fantastic. Is it true that it used to overrun? Is it true? That it used to overrun? What, the whistle test? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, well, it wasn't live. So it could run as long as you wanted it to run. Um... When I, when I went into television, um, I wanted, with my show, I wanted to see guitar leads, I wanted to see amps, I wanted to see an audience, you know, and put the lights up, let's see an audience, none of this London weekend television stuff with lights in the background and all that, you know, fairground stuff. Let's do it, warts and all. And maybe that could have easily come from my experiences of the whistle test because my TV shows, I remember Brian May did a duet with me. I loved it so much. I said to him, can we do it again? Well, aren't you happy with it? And I actually said, no. And I was <laughs> delighted with it. I just wanted to play with Brian May again. And it was the same when I, I became like an honorary member of Status Quo, which was a huge honor because I love Quo. And we did exactly the same. We ran so much overtime because they did whatever you want and all that stuff and rocking all over the world. And then we did a little song, the three of us, me, Francis and, and um, Rick Parfit, sadly gone, um, called Old Address Book. And I loved it so much. Me and Status Quo sitting on three stools playing acoustic guitars that I did exactly the same thing. I think we can do it better than this. We couldn't. We did it great. I was very proud. But I... I bullshitted, basically, just so that I could play again with Quo. Um, Nothing that you see on telly, really, 
television is um, is a game of of untruths. It isn't the real world, and what you see is not necessarily what's filmed. We know this from any aspect of it, even political stuff. You know, you'll you'll still uh, you'll still see stuff edited as the BBC suit it. You know, I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Can't possibly be anything like a screen. They must have people on hand. They must have people there looking after animals. They must have people there in case you get a nip from an animal or whatever. People hidden behind trees everywhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they want the arguments. They want the people not getting on. Oh, of course. You know, of course they do, yeah. But often they are getting on. And they're having a great time of it, I'm sure. But don't... My always, I've said to everybody that I know, my mates and family, never believe telly. Never believe telly. You know, it's great when Ant and Deck are on because Ant can laugh at all Deck's jokes and Deck can laugh at all Ant's jokes, all premeditated, of course. And it sounds like off the cuff, but it's everything is rehearsed. It has to be because if you think about it, a camera has to go into your face if yeah. if you're going to speak. If, if if Josh crashes in on you, then the camera isn't on Josh. So you go, hang on a minute, let's just do that. Do that again. Can we? Uh, let's just go into Josh's face. You know, get the camera on him. So it cannot possibly be off the cuff, much as everyone loves to think so. Do you think that's why Freddie Starr didn't work further, like later on in his career, because of like the change in television? Because yeah. Less live. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I spent four years working with Jim Davison, who was, we were chalk and cheese, you know, but we were both TV acts and we were both with the same um, management. So I did a lot of times. I went to the Falklands with Jim Davison. Um, <clears throat> I saw the changes happening, Josh. You know, the, the the thing is, if you take someone like Freddie Starr. That's exactly the material I'm talking about, which is not the way it is. It ain't super cool to to have a go at women and all that stuff that Freddie Starr used to do. I don't dispute he did it well, but it was a different era. I think it's very unfair to judge someone who was doing something in the 60s and 70s. Another talent contest winner, by the way, Freddie Starr. Um, I don't think it's fair, and Jim Davidson, yeah, there's loads of them. Um, because it was okay for the time. I think you mentioned Stan Boardman, another one, yeah. you know, who was great for the time. But if you put uh, <coughs> Russell Howard or, or um, Sean Locke, who I think is great, if you put them back into the 60s and 70s, they would have probably been thrown into the Tower of London, <laughs> you know, for, for the material they do. Um, and we were never allowed to talk about, um, in my case, let's say Edward Heath, like people talk today about Boris Johnson on stage. Yeah. I would be 
well, they, they wouldn't mind me doing it, but they wouldn't let me do it on television. Absolutely not. Not done. We are, you know, we are television. We're sacred and stuff. Nowadays, you say what you want, and they deserve it. I think you're right. I think it was the first time. But don't forget, it wasn't mainstream television. They pushed it away. It had to come on. But it wasn't 8 o'clock viewing. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we need to do this. But uh, we need to do this, but not at 8 o'clock. It's not really done. And in fact, there was a woman on that. That was the week that was. TW3, as, as we used to call it. I was only a little boy then. I hastened to add Josh. I'm not, I'm not 90. But, <laughs> but there was a girl singer called Millicent Martin. And she was one of the first topical singer-songwriters. You know, and I worked, when I began my career in radio, I worked with a guy called Bernard Braden. And there was another um, singer called Jake Thackeray. And he was a topical singer-songwriter. And I used to do like Pebble Mill at One, for example. Um, and they would always check the song. And if they thought it was a bit near the knuckle, do something else. Just do something else. I did a show at the Palladium with, um, with the Royals. And normally, um, they will not allow you to... Uh, to just go on stage in front of the royal family and say what you want. And I, I remember I was doing a thing um, about the grand old Duke of York. You know, he had 10,000 men, you know, the little nursery rhyme. And the Duke of York was in the balcony, which was why I was doing it. And they pissed themselves. And they thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I refused to have my material censored by the royals or by ITV. I said, look, I am me. You've booked me to be me. And uh, if I can't do what I want, then you're taking my wings off me. I can't fly away, you know. Um, nowadays, of course, no one gives a toss. There was a, an, um, there's been an amazing transition of comedy in the last 20 years, I can assure you. Because I've been at the sharp end, you know, and I've seen the changes. They're colossal. Colossal. Much more than, like, the Second World War onwards, you know, when everyone was still a stand-up and... Oi, 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 and all that stuff. Now, comedy is important. It's actually politically important. I think you're right. I think it might well have been through David Frost and, and TW, you know, I think. Uh, okay, so returning to comedy, you secured your own TV special in 1985 for Thames TV, A Dabble with Digents. 
What sort of accolade was this? How significant were studios such as Granada and TV Centre to the entertainment output of the day? Yeah, we're a little bit askew with there. Uh, I think my first TV was... Um, uh, uh, it was late 83 into 84. Um, and I didn't do any BBC stuff then, apart from Ronnie Corbett. Uh, I didn't do anything else because I was signed to ITV. And they didn't like you doing working with the enemy as such. Um, and I don't think it was called a dabble with digents. I think that was, uh, I'm really stretching my memory here. I think that there was one show called Dabble with Digents, which was Thames. But that was before I got my own show. My own show was London Weekend Television. Um, and for me, I didn't worry about studios because they had an audience and all I did was treat it as a gig. I just went out there and I warmed up. I was my own warm-up act. So before the cameras rolled, I used to go and do half an hour, get them singing, you know, tell them some funny stories and go, right, I'm going to start filming in a minute. So I'll go and put some splosh on my face, you know, and put my shirt on and stuff like that. And they loved it and they really felt part of it, you know, because I'd actually gone and broken the ice for them. So TV studios as such never really phased me. I thought, well, they're only an audience. They're not going to be as hard as Supertramp doing the Breakfast in America tour. They're not going to be as hard as Jethro Tull, you know, heavy metal audiences and Deep Purple. They're not going to be that. Just go out there, Richard, and enjoy yourself. So I was never phased by moving into telly at all. Okay, and throughout the 90s, you were a regular contributor to light entertainment shows of the day. What was it like to work with TV royalty, including Seda Black, Des O'Connor, and Ronnie Corbett? Ronnie Corbett actually did one of my routines, uh, Jungle Cup final, in his big armchair. Uh, and I was very honoured, even though he nicked it. I, I was very, very honoured, because uh, he is a comedy legend. Seda uh, Black, I only ever worked with on surprise surprise when there was a Digents fan was doing something or other and and I turned up behind his back and sang him his favourite song um, only to be outshadowed by the Bee Gees who were on the same show who I think I think seemed to be quite more important than I was um, <laughs> and the other person you mentioned Silla Black um, um, Des O'Connor Des or Des O'Connor was actually one of the real nice guys of television. Really nice, normal bloke. And, uh, and of course, I did quite literally hundreds of countdowns. And Des O'Connor took countdown over when Richard mm. Whiteley passed away. And I found that difficult because Des O'Connor is a, he's actually a, a good working comic. He's done it all. He's done it all. Um, with Richard Whiteley, when I did count, Countdown, excuse me, Richard was a stooge and I could be as funny as I wanted. Des O'Connor was a comedian. He, he wasn't a stooge and therefore the interplay was completely different. And I, we both found it difficult because it was like scoring points, you know. Um, but of the people, the younger people, you know, like, like yourselves, you know, they're there were some really nice guys. Jimmy Tarbuck was a fantastic bloke 
who encouraged young people to get up and do what you're made of, you know, bring that scousy stuff out of him, you know. He was a, a great pioneer of new people. Des O'Connor was. There were people that weren't, well, we won't mention names, that's wrong, but there were people who were just feathering their own nests and self-important, if you like. Des was great. Tarby was a really genuine bloke. The best one I ever worked with probably was Bob Monkhouse, who was an absolute gentleman. You know, in every way, just a gentleman. Photographic memory. Oh, Richard, I remember in 1979 you did a radio show and you did a song about a girl being packed up. Yeah, I did. I loved that song. I've got it somewhere at home. You know, and he was fantastic. So I do have nice memories of that whole television era. But I do think you have to move on. I just think that otherwise you're yesterday's fish and chips, you know, and I never want you to do that. I, that's why I'm here tonight. I, I want to stand up, make people laugh and sing some songs. It's all I ever want you to do. And people like Des O'Connor, Jimmy Tarbuck, they, they liked what I did. Um, but there were people that I was in competition with, if you like, who didn't like what I did at all. But that's the way this industry is. It's a bit dog-eat-dog, -dog, you know, to get the ratings. Okay. Uh, what's still the thrill of a live performance for you? <clears throat> um, good question. This is a, a really good question. I, I, I think if you're a performer, I think it is... And I know it's corny, but it is in your blood, you know. And it's not easy to just go, oh, sorry, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, I like the challenge of being ageless, because I'm 70. Um, and that's quite old to be on the road, you know. Um, but I like changing my material. Uh, I like going, I can write a song about that, you know. True... A lot of my stuff is nostalgic because my audience is of a certain age, you know, where they've been around the block a few times, you know, and it's no good me telling them stories about Little Mix, you know, stuff like that, because they wouldn't be interested. Um, but I do love the challenge of coming up with new material, which I do all the time. And I think if I didn't, I wouldn't be here tonight because no one would come and see me. But if you're going to keep churning your material around... And I'm quite lucky because I've got music as well behind me so I can go and do the big festivals, which I've just done in the summer. And then you get a trickle from that for people to come to the concerts. So there's always a turnover, you know, uh, of audience. What keeps me going? Well, I've got a mortgage for a start. Uh, I've got two daughters. I've got horses. Um, and, uh, yeah, they have to be paid. Um, and I love it. I love playing the guitar. I actually love playing the guitar more than s singing, um, but not being the world's best guitarist, um, it, would, it would be a crap night if you come and saw me just to play the guitar. But I will never stop. Uh, I don't think people do. I don't think people, actors you see on telly and you go, God, he was in blah, 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 you know, about 95 years ago or whatever. But I think that candle flickers in them, you know, for all time. It does for me, and I'm perfectly... I've made 34 albums because I love being in the studio and coming up with 
good funny songs and things, you know. So uh, I'm still going, but uh, don't know how much longer, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> Looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? Easy. Um, playing, a, playing a guitar duet with Brian May that I mentioned. Um, he was a genius, there's no question. Um, and the way he let me, it was quite a humorous song, She's a Lady, and the way he let the words come out, he didn't blast a guitar around it, you know, he waited until there was a nice little line and then in he'd come. And to see a, a real pro at work like that, um, I felt very proud, having been half of Digents and Brian May. I think it was a fantastic thing to have done, you know. Um, the Royal stuff, which I should be proud of, didn't really bother me much, really, because I thought, well, they're only sitting up there in a balcony. What about this lot down here? A bit like John Lennon did, you know, with the Beatles. Um, they're the ones I want to entertain. If that lot up there in the balcony laughed, they didn't even bloody buy tickets anyway. Uh, they got comps. Um, but I'll get this lot. Uh, and so I never felt that buzz of doing Life of My Majesties and stuff. Well, I did it, you know. Uh, um, it wasn't a, a massive, massive thrill to me. Um, the greatest achievement for me was to do my first headline concert. Key Theatre Peterborough. Uh, sold it out. And I never thought I'd do a concert. I thought I was always going to be a folk club act, you know, just going around singing my songs, a few beers, a couple of fags, go home. To actually get to a concert level, I never expected that in a million years. And um, I don't know how many concerts I've done now. I think it's about three, three and a half thousand or something like that. Um, I never expected that either. I just thought, well, I'll keep going till no one books me. Um, I've only ever had one job in my life, and that's an ambulance driver. That's the only job I've ever had. And I always, see, I always used to think to myself, well, if it all dries up, all goes wrong, I'll go back on the ambulances. It's a good, worthwhile job, you know. Um, never had to, so I'm very lucky. Excellent. Uh, and finally, mm -hmm. what's next for Richard Dijans? Um I'm writing books at the moment. Um, I've just started... Um, I did a couple of books on Kindle, bloody waste of time, you know. Um, but I've actually started publishing my own books. Um, the one I'm very proud of is My Hundred Strangest Shows, which is, literally came out this week. Um, and it's about all the things that go wrong in this job. You know, turning up at Chichester to do a gig and nobody turned up. I mean, what do you do? Uh, I had to get paid, get my petrol money, and so I went on. To no one. Um, can't remember how well I went down. I don't remember that. Um, going to China, you know, with the to entertain the troops. Um, it was Hong Kong actually, but I wanted to go to China like everybody would. You know, the only way I could get into China was to go and play at a British base, military base there. I'll do it. I'll do it. Just so I could go and have a look at the population of China and do something that not many people in the West are ever allowed to do. Got there, 600 people. Beautiful evening, you imagine in China, blue skies, gorgeous. Not one member of that audience spoke or understood a word of English because they were all Gurkhas. And I thought, what do I do? What do I do? 
So suddenly I'm getting them all clapping hands and clapping to the left, clapping to the right, tap your left foot. But then you then the Steve Martin um, knowledge comes in because I used to do Julian banjos with him. Now Julian banjos da -da -ding, ding 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 is known all over the world. And so I did Julian banjos where I was the guitar and six hundred Gurkhas with the banjo and they were following me, you know, and all that. And it was fantastic. It was comedy that had no language barrier. And mm -hmm. I defy anyone to to say comedy don't travel. Hang on, it does. I proved it in China. That was a, a fantastic thing. That's in the book as well, because I'm very proud of that. Um, it depends what aspects of pride you, you mean, you know. I mean, I think I was the first dictionary corner person to do 100 shows on Countdown. And I was quite proud of that at the time. Um, but things pale into insignificance sometimes, you know, and you just think, yeah, well, I did it, you know. Nowadays, I'm, I like being uh, an inspiration. Uh, Russ Noble, who's a great comic, um, says that I inspired him and he used to listen to my show and uh, he learnt comedy from Richard Digens, which I think is absolutely fantastic and makes me feel a bit humble because he's a good comic. You know, if he was a pile of shit, I might think different, but he, 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 he's good, you mm. know. And um, the interesting thing is, to close the interview, the reason I'm still around is because there aren't, there aren't many people who play the guitar and sing funny songs anymore. Very, very few. I know a couple, but they're not household names, you know. I think I might be the dinosaur that continues. Yeah. Yeah, the guitar playing with the songs, have a sing, have a join in, you know, a bit like Boy Scouts around a campfire, I don't know. But, <laughs> but it's gone yeah. to a degree, you know, well, mm. to a big degree. Because you're looking at the only person who does it. And maybe that's why I, I've got a longevity, because I don't really have any competition, to be honest. What about Bill Bailey? Keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> Not guitar. <laughs> Bill Bailey is... Um, he should have been in my era of the folk scene because he's exactly what we did and Bill Bailey's a great storyteller you know a fantastic storyteller I would like to see I would like to see Bill Bailey do small venues you know where people can really get on top of him and you know and listen to it but you know these people now they get big they go and do the big gigs it's not really where what I'm made of you know so just that How's that? A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.